I'm Elizabeth Messer, and we're so glad you're joining us for Lesson 8, the final lesson in our study of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. In this lesson, we'll read and discuss together chapters 12 and 13, where the author encourages the reader to hold tight, to run the race, to persevere, to not give up, and not be discouraged. He ends with reminding us that Jesus promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. And what do we have to be afraid of if Jesus and God the Father are with us and on our side? Thanks for listening. And thanks for joining us for lesson eight. Here we are at our final lesson in our study of the letter to the Hebrews. And this is lesson eight, Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever, where we will be reading and discussing the final two chapters of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and chapter 13, where the author is um, encouraging and exhorting the reader to keep the faith, to stay strong to Jesus, uh, even in the midst of persecution and discouragement. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 3 together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary." and lose heart. So I love the picture that the author gives us here of our journey with Christ, our walk with Christ being a race, and this image of running this race and throwing off the things that we get caught up in, that we get tangled up in, the things that are holding us back from running that race. Um, I love how the author speaks about this race is marked out for us, speaking to the plan that God has for you and your life. And then also referring back to uh, chapter 11, he starts off by saying, therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, um, I love this picture of these witnesses who are watching you run this race that's marked out for you, that are cheering you on, that have gone before you and know how difficult it is. And so they know how to cheer for you, to encourage you, how to pray for you. I just love the picture that the author gives us 
here as he's encouraging the reader to press on towards the end. One interesting thing I think to note is that um, this book was originally written in the in the Greek language, and the word for the race is actually agon, A-G-O-N, and that's the word that we um, get our English word agony from. So here, the race that we're talking about is not just a jaunt around the block. It's not the 100-meter dash. We're talking about the long race of life, the marathon race, um, speaking of the Greeks. And you're going to need the marathon pace to persevere and to finish. But I think that's just something interesting to note. The race, the agon, the agony. Um, Think about it as a marathon and think about pacing yourself so that you can make it to the end. And what are you going to need to do or change or throw off um, to enable you to finish the race at a marathon pace, to keep that steady pace that you need in order to finish? Who is included in this great cloud of witnesses that are mentioned in verse 1, and how does this heavenly spiritual community change your perspective on running the race? Well, obviously, the author is talking about um, the heroes of the Old Testament that he's just mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. We talked about um, such heroes as Abraham, Moses, David, Samuel, so many others, um, and we're familiar with those um, through the biblical stories of the Old Testament. But this is also a place where I think it's important for you to think about and consider your own spiritual heroes of the faith. Remember in the last lesson where I asked you to think about someone or several people, believers that you really um, admire who've gone through difficult circumstances, and yet they've persevered. They've held on to their faith. Their faith has grown deeper and stronger because of the challenges they've faced. And um, you have them as a hero. You're thinking of these people who've gone before you. And sometimes it might be someone that you know from your community back home, from your church, even from our Grove City community, but they can also be people that you've read about through biographies. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be someone that you know. I'm reading right now um, a book by Corey Ten Boom, and I just love her spunk and vitality, and um, I'm thinking about her as a, a hero of the faith and certainly someone who persevered to the very end. And I think it's a beautiful picture to think about these people on the sidelines cheering you on as you're running the race. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
How is Jesus both the author, Archegos, the captain, and the perfecter of our faith? How does this help us to persevere? Um, I love that the word, the Greek word for author, Archegos, means the captain. And I like to think about Jesus as the captain of our ship. He's the author. He's the one leading the way. He's the one going before us and plowing up the hard and dried, packed ground in order for us to uh, come behind him and, and grow because of the work that he's already done. We're getting to follow in his footsteps um, because of the work that he's done before us. But he's also the perfecter of our faith. So he's gone before us. He set the way, but he's also with us on the journey so that if we get off in any way, he's right there with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. They set us back on the right track. Um, He hasn't just um, started, started us off on the journey and then left us to figure it out. But he's there with us, making sure that we're on the right track, we're on the right path. I love, too, that these words, that consider him and fix your eyes, uh, when they're translated, they're Greek words that astronomers would use as they're gazing and studying a star in the heavenlies. How does this deepen your reading of the passage? So I love those words, consider him who endured such opposition with sinful men. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This, uh, the author here is giving us this picture of like a telescope where you look through the telescope, you focus in on one thing. And when you're using that telescope, everything else except for what's in the view is hidden from sight and um, you're kind of blinded to the other things. You're focused on that one thing. And I love the picture that the author gives us with those words. So for your own reflection, what things in your life cause you to grow weary and lose heart? In what ways does it encourage and comfort you to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men? So why don't you take a few moments now to think about those things that cause you to grow weary and lose heart as you're running the race. Just take some time to write those things down and pray to God and ask him to help you on your journey as you're walking, that um, you'll be able to let go of those things, to push through those difficult things, so that you can keep on running the race that Jesus has set before you. Now that you've had time to reflect on that, let's go ahead and move on to the next section, Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 13. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. 
My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And just a little note here, the author is quoting directly from Proverbs chapter 3 in that, in that passage. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. And what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So how does your perspective on discipline change when we realize that we are the children of God? I Just don't forget the relational piece here, that um, this isn't just some arbitrary rule maker in the sky. This is your heavenly father who knows you, who loves you, who created you. I would dare say he knows you even better than you know yourself. And um, so as you think about discipline, some of this seems quite harsh. Discipline isn't a word that we have a lot of positive connotation with, but don't forget the relational piece here that remember that the author is writing this um, knowing that our identity is as children of God. And just because God's disciplining us about something, that doesn't change who we are relationally. In fact, the author's saying that um, it shows even more that you're his children, that he cares about you all the more because he's investing the time and the effort to discipline you if there's something in your life that's not bearing fruit. And when we talk about discipline, think about these synonyms for discipline. Training, correction, preparation, constructive correction, pruning. So those are all words that we might use in the place of discipline. And I think if we're open to those in different spheres of our life, um, in other relationships, in our academics, in our athletic pursuits, then all the more should we be open to this kind of training in a spiritual sense that if there's something that you're investing in, that you're spending time in and energy in, that's not fruit bearing, that's not going to be good for you in the long term. And um, of course, this includes um, sinful behaviors, but also um, ministry that's maybe based out of our own strength and our own ideas. It's not something that um, God asked us to, to take charge of anyways. 
Um, when we get ourselves overcommitted and overinvolved in something that God never asked us to pick up in the first place. Um, so I think this can speak to a wide variety of behaviors, um, not, not only sinful behavior. So for personal reflection, what discipline did you resent as a child but have come to appreciate now with more maturity? And I'm sure if we think back, this is one that's fun to talk about as a group because I know that we all probably have stories of naughtiness as a child where we thought there was no way our parents would ever figure out what we had done behind their backs but somehow with those magical eyes in the back of their head and discernment, uh, they, they knew. And, um, and we realize now that they were right to discipline us for that action and that behavior. Can you remember a time as a child when you fully understood your parents' discipline? Um, I know thinking about as an immature child, it's hard to realize at the time what was maybe actually happening. But sometimes I think too, even you know, I deserve a punishment for this, or this this is not going well. We need a, we need a course correction. And how is God the Father different from our earthly parents? I'll just tell you from my own experience of being a parent of uh, three lively children that it takes a lot of energy to discipline and to discipline well. You're constantly kind of on. You have to be, um, you know, observant and watching things and ready to correct. Um, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a job. I would say that it's much easier to just sit back and let bad behavior continue. But you know, as a parent, if you don't step in and address the behavior, it's going to become habit and entrenched and just much more difficult to deal with later on. I would say the difference between God as a father and how he's different from our earthly parents, and I know this, speaking from my own experience as a parent, is that you very much realize that you're not, there is no such thing as a perfect parent aside from our heavenly father that parents are human. Um, they make mistakes. There's times where they may be disciplined in anger or too harshly, or they make a mistake, and they're they're human and and need forgiveness. I know that for myself as a parent, there's times that I I did not discipline perfectly. But remember the difference with God, our Father, is that. He sees things from a different perspective, and our Heavenly Father is perfect. And so when He disciplines us, it's not to harm us or in a cruel way or even to punish us. It's more of, look back at the synonyms that we wrote. It's training. It's correction. He's preparing us for something greater He's pruning us. He's cutting off those dead things in our lives that are not life-giving and fruit-bearing and wanting roots to go down on the um, behaviors and attitudes and investments 
of things in our lives that really do bring life. Think about this verse. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, with submit to the Father of our spirits and live, as it says in Hebrews 12.9. I love how, too, in um, Moses talks about in the Old Testament, he says, choose life that you may live. If you have the choice, choose the things that are going to bring forth life. And I think if we all had that set before us, we would choose the things that are going to be life-giving, not the things that are going to lead to death. And it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. How does God's discipline lead to a harvest of righteousness and peace in our lives? Um, I think God prunes us and disciplines us because he wants us to invest, to sow into those things that are going to bring forth peace and righteousness. Those are the things he wants us to invest our time and energies in. And lastly, what does discipline or correction have to do with healing? Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Um, I heard someone one time talking about healing, and they were saying that sometimes these entrenched behaviors that go on and on, it's almost like a broken bone um, that's been, that's healed incorrectly. And when I think about this verse, I think about this image of sometimes they have to go back and reset that bone, break it, and then reset it so that it will heal correctly. And that sounds painful, but that's sometimes, I think, how this type of discipline feels, especially if there's something that um, has gone on for a long time in our life, and we have to say no to it. We have to remove whatever it is from our life. Or maybe God is saying no to it and that door is closed. We're not able to invest or participate any longer. And it feels like that. It feels like the pain of a bone that's had to be broken and reset in order to heal. But I think the verse And the picture here that God gives us, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So instead of walking, continuing to walk on this broken bone, there's this image of healing and your path being made straight because of the Lord's discipline. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, If you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you will find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place of training and correction, and it is not so bad. What a great quote for this verse. I've also heard someone say that if you think about your life in terms of spending all eternity with God, that our 60 to 80 to 100 years we have here on earth, it's all about um, thinking about it as terms of 
uh, training and correction for the eternity that we'll get to spend with him. When he's looking at us, he's thinking about your heart for all eternity with him. That's what he really cares about. Let's move on to part three, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So what is this bitter root that the author speaks of here? How does the bitter root of anger grow up to cause trouble and defile many? So here he's talking about bitterness, which is really just undealt with anger that um, resides within our heart. You know, sometimes I think that as Christians, we feel uh, that or we think that we're not supposed to have feelings or experience feelings. But if you look back in the scriptures, in the Psalms, in the Old Testament, even Jesus in the New Testament, um, they all expressed emotions. And since we're created in the image of God, um, we express and experience emotions as well. But what he's he's not saying, don't be angry. Um, he's saying, don't let this bitter root of anger grow up inside of you. He's talking about anger that hasn't been dealt with. You haven't brought it to the Lord. You haven't asked him to help you with that anger. You haven't um, sought forgiveness or help with forgiveness. Um, it's anger that's basically festered. It's it's grown like a cancer and it just begins to over take you. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I certainly have where I'm angry about something. I haven't dealt with it. It just continues to kind of grow and build and fester. And then you either explode at the person uh, that you're angry with, or sometimes that anger comes out at other people that you really love that have no idea what's going on. And uh, sometimes those that are closest to us that we love the most experience kind of this wrath of of this anger that's been undealt with. So he's saying here, um, you know, watch, be careful, watch your heart. Don't let the bitterness of anger grow up um, among you. Okay, let's keep reading uh, down through verse 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. 
The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So here he's referencing the mountain, Mount Sinai in the Old Testament that the Israelites were dealing with when they received the two commandments. So he's saying, you're not dealing with this mountain with the thunderbolts going off and, um, you know, you're not dealing here with the God of fear. So starting at verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So here it's referencing, remember how in the last lesson we talked about the old covenant versus the new covenant. So here he's very much giving us a picture of what the old covenant was like at Mount Sinai when Moses received the tablets. And here he's talking about this is the new covenant that you've received um, from Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. He's talking about the author. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Talking about Jesus. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. So let's look at that passage. It says the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what, and to fill in the blank there, what cannot be shaken will remain. And here the author of Hebrews is directly quoting from the prophet Haggai chapter 2. So in what ways have you experienced this type of heavenly shaking in your own life or in the life of your family? What was shaken off and what has remained? And here I am, I'm recording this. I think this is our seventh or eighth week of uh, quarantine and self-isolation because of the COVID-19 crisis. And I strongly believe that we are all experiencing a time of heavenly shaking. Um, Did the coronavirus come from God? Uh, No, I I don't believe that it did, but I do believe that he can use anything and all things. And I think he's using the situation now 
as a time of heavenly shaking. And what do I mean by that? I think it's a a, a, sh- a time of shaking, and we all experience this, and we experience it several times throughout our lives. So I don't think this will only be the only time that you experience shaking, but it's a time um, where our our normal lives are disrupted, our normal routines with all their predictabilities um, have ceased to be comfortable. The things that we normally can find comfort in um, have been taken away from us. We can't um, find our security and our circumstances because they seem so kind of discombobulated and uncertain. Um, and what was shaken off or what has remained? And I think that would be interesting for you thinking about your own time in uh, this season of shaking. I was kind of reflecting a little bit on this a few weeks ago. And I do feel like with this season of shaking, there has been a real sense of um, almost freedom and also, I would say clarity, a sense of clarity that comes along with a season of shaking of what it is that I'm supposed to let go of and to cease working on and what it is that really matters during this time. And I think it would be interesting to ask you that question as well. Have you experienced um the gift of clarity that comes along with the season of shaking where God just makes it very clear what it is you're supposed to be investing in and spending time with. Um, Even going back farther this past summer, I really experienced a sense of shaking where two of the ministries that I had been involved with earlier and and both had a tremendous, a deep impact on my life, on my walk with God. And both of them experienced a bit of their own shaking. And um, one was um, a crisis, I would just say kind of a crisis in leadership and some poor decisions in leadership. And the other one had... Um, a crisis in their finances that was pretty shaking. And it was very unsettling to me. Here were these ministry groups that I had really been impacted by. And it was very, um, there was a sense of instability is the word I was looking for. And that, wow, these were things that I've really built upon. I felt supported me. And, um, you know, ministries are no different than any business and that they're run by people and that people, people who aren't perfect that make mistakes. But the blessing, it was very unsettling to me, um, both of these experiences, But the blessing that came out of it was that I realized as I kind of prayed and talked to God about it and voiced some of my disappointment and just confusion, um, I realized that it was ultimately God who was working through both of these ministries to shape me and form me and that my identity and my security should not be um, in the ministry as effective as it was, it shouldn't be in the ministry itself, 
but it should be in God is my ultimate foundation. Um, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who was working in and through these ministries to impact me. And what he was shaking was my identity in those ministries and not in God himself. So just be open. Ask God, God, what are you teaching me in the season of shaking? What are you asking me to let go of? What are you asking me to surrender? Where is my identity invested that it shouldn't be? What are you trying to shake off um, in this season? And just like the verse promises, so that what cannot be shaken, those things that will last for all eternity, will remain. And I love this quote by Nancy Guthrie. Trust in God when the miracle does not come, when the urgent prayer gets no answer, when there is only darkness, this is the kind of faith that God values most of all. This is the kind of faith that can be valued and displayed only in the midst of difficult circumstances. This is the kind of faith that cannot be shaken because it is the result of having been shaken. That's such a great quote. Okay, to, so to sum up this last lesson, lesson eight, yes, there will be trials and difficulties in life. Times of shaking, as the author writes in Hebrews 12. But take heart and remember Christ promises to us. Hebrews 13, 6, where he says, So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Or Hebrews 13, verse 5 where God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And here the author is quoting Psalms, but I'm also just remembering where Jesus in the Gospels tells us, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And um, he's there at the... um, when we stop and pray, when we ask for help, when we turn our hearts to him, he's there with us. So just because you're going through a time of shaking, don't um, take it to mean that God is not with you. Remember that he is with you in those difficult times. Jesus himself tells us in John 16, verse 33, in this world, You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And as Christians, we have the um, we have the good news that we know how this story will end. We know that Christ has come to defeat death. We know that he has come and reconciled all things to himself through the cross so that we can be with him, in relationship with him, his children, forever and ever. So let me pray to end our time together. Father, thank you for caring for me as your own child. Open my eyes to see your eternal perspective in my own discipline, brokenness, and healing. And help me to trust you and your love when I'm walking through seasons of correction 
or seasons of shaking. Comfort me through Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. Amen and amen. you are encouraged by that message. Please join us for the following lessons and be sure to subscribe, like, and comment on this podcast Elizabeth Messer shares on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you.